Hello and welcome to Demoncast Season 2, Episode 6, A Case of a Commando by Any Other Name. I'm Sarah. I'm Chris. And welcome to today's episode. (laughs) Indeed. Coming to you live from the site of the UK's first local quarantine zone. Yay! We've officially been re-quarantined. Yeah, literally this weekend should have been when like restaurants and bars and things reopened a few, like hairdressers, that sort of thing. Everywhere else in the UK it has, apart from where we live, which has been relocked down yeah. basically <laughs> yeah now with added roadblocks police roadblocks yeah just to... to stop people from traveling unnecessarily uh, it's going really well this whole coronavirus thing in, in the uk in general particularly in leicester i think we need to really be thankful that we've got such a great prime minister making sure that more britons have died of coronavirus than died of dunkirk d-day the falklands war 9-11, Operation Desert Storm, Operation Shock and Awe, and the Afghan invasion combined. So thank you, Boris Johnson, for being better at killing British people than most of our actual enemies. I think it might be clear that we're becoming increasingly sort of bitter as this goes on. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But um, this is our kind of like little fray into the outside world, isn't it? We're just reaching out. Yes, and, and expressing our delight yeah <laughs> uh in other news we watched hamilton that's one of the most exciting things that's happened to us in the last fortnight i made you watch hamilton yeah i was glad you did i actually liked it a lot more than i thought i would i think i liked it more than you i wouldn't say that i think it was more that i was expecting to enjoy it so i was like i enjoyed it the anticipated amount whereas you were kind of you kind of resigned yourself to watching it. i think you agreed yeah. to watch it but i could tell that you weren't that into it and you were sort of grumbling for the first like minute or so and then you shut up and i was like i think he's enjoying it because he hasn't said anything for the last like two hours so yeah you know because it's hella long as it well was. i mean for some background it's not like i have anything particular against hamilton Uh, prior to watching it it's just that I don't like musicals that much which is ironic because I've worked on a few but I just don't really like them um, Mm. that much it's a lot easier to enjoy them when you're getting paid by the hour for it (laughs) (laughs) but Hamilton was a rare example of a good musical I think for me anyway to my tastes yeah Normally in musicals, you get about 120 bars worth of song and it advances the story about as much as five or six lines of dialogue would. But in Hamilton, the music and the kind of dialogue and the narrative were all really like well tied together, which I Mm. liked. So the music didn't kind of feel like it was selling the story short. Yeah, it all had a purpose. It all carried the story forward and stuff. Yeah. Um, Before we got like locked down... We managed to have like a socially distanced Glastonbury style party in my sister's garden. With a TV in the shed so that we could all gather around the fire pit and watch reruns of Glastonbury Festival performances. We all got like massive amounts of smoke inhalation from the <laughs> from yeah. the fire we had. Uh, we got rained on, so it's quite realistic to the actual the Glastonbury experience. Yeah. we did have a nice barbecue though, so the food was probably better than real Glastonbury. Yeah, but the acid was far crapper. 
<laughs> in that it did not exist. Yes, there was no acid. Yeah. I'm glad we got to do that before we got um Re-locked. shut down. Because we can still see people, but we can't see them in our own gardens or in our houses or anything. So we have to see them like outdoors. In the park. Yeah, in the park or wherever. And there can't be more than six of you. And sadly for me, my sister is actually outside of the lockdown zone now, even though she lives fairly nearby. She's just at, outside the quarantine zone. Yeah, so I, I can't see her now. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, sad, sad times. But... But... Back to the main reason we're here. Chapter six, lighted flyers. Boy, oh boy. It's a good chapter. Oh, yeah, but like... It's another long chapter. Yeah. I like it, though. Plenty mm-hmm. happens. Absolutely. Um, Getting into the nitty-gritty. Things start to come together. I'd forgotten that certain things that happen in this chapter happen this early in the yeah. book. I think there's one thing we can say about us rereading this, and it's that we have forgotten substantial amounts. I've particularly <laughs> forgotten the way in which certain things happen. Yeah. I think that's because in your head, especially if you've not read something for a long time, at least for me, I almost keep like a highlight reel of like mm. your, your main plot themes, your favourite parts, etc. Mm. But you don't remember all the nitty gritty details and it's quite interesting to reread it and be like, that happens now? What? Yeah, you kind of knit together the best bits or... Just store it as a convenient little synopsis rather than yeah, exactly. a proper understanding. Anyway, the chapter opens with Lee Scoresby. Yay! Uh, He's having a conversation with someone called Sam Cantino, who's another old flyer. They're sort of exchanging war stories, and they're in Nova Zembla, which is a place that we have heard of. Yes. Because everyone was very worried they'd get blown there by a wayward wind. But now Lee's gone there intentionally, and he's in a bar. And I prefix this whole bit by saying that essentially what happens is a bunch of old souls gossip whilst getting drunk. So the Mm. conversation bobs backwards and forwards a lot and it's actually quite a clever way to get lots of what could be slightly disparate information into a conversation neat and packed up for us right at the start of the chapter there's also something quite cool about the idea of this like bar where all the adventury sort of guys like hang out and just you know when they're not adventuring or working or whatever they get drunk yeah it's kind of like Um, you meet indiana jones there and yeah rick deckard and Anyone else? Han Solo, all the people. Yeah, he'd definitely be there. All the people that Harrison Ford has played. Have you ever, have you ever noticed how Harrison Ford always plays an adventurer? I'll just leave that there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wouldn't mind being stuck in a bar with entirely Harrison Ford's. Young Harrison Ford. Yes, maybe less so Harrison Ford now. Just all of Harrison Ford's previous. I wouldn't mind being stuck on Young Harrison Ford's bar. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I do have a question for you at this point. I am, in fact, a top. <laughs> you just got to add that in there because you can't have anyone possibly believe that you're anything other than a top. It's a big deal for me. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Important question. Does fancy vodka taste better? Have you ever tried stuff that isn't, like, you know, dead cheap I've, I've supermarket? I've tried a variety of vodkas. Like, you know, in the alcohol, like, the alcohol mm. spelt with a K... The alcohol spelt with a K? Yeah, like the C in alcohol is spelt with a K. Is it? And it smells like paint stripper, that kind of... The kind you buy when you're, like, 19 so, or something and you're at uni. I've drunk a variety of vodkas as okay. it happens in my ramblings around the East. 
and <laughs> all right, look, that's you. <laughs> yeah, and um, like, there's definitely a point at which you get diminishing returns on the quality of vodka. Mm-hmm. Like, arguably, the sort of ten to twelve pound—that's about twenty dollar bottles of vodka—are the nicest because they have the least flavour. Some of the expensive ones do have quite a nice flavour, but some of them taste almost as much like hairspray as really cheap vodka does. So mm-hmm. you know, maybe like. If it's really cold as well, that makes a difference, mm. I thought. But well, I think I think with vodka, the best you can ask for is that it be smooth, to be honest. It's not like whiskey where you get quite a lot of nuances in the flavour yeah. um, necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just like smoothness that makes the difference. Yeah, but if you are a vodka connoisseur... Please do tell us what the difference is. Someone's going to scream at me and say, how dare you say vodka isn't nuanced? Well, I'd be interested to know, just because, yeah, the only stuff I've ever had has been dirt cheap and... Tastes like hairspray. And while we're discussing hairspray vodka, Uh Lee and Sam are discussing giant squid attacks on sailors and various shenanigans that have been going on since the calamity that was Azriel opening his... Bridge Between Worlds. Yeah, so they talk about the River Yenisee being free of ice. Um, I had to do a little research there, which mostly involved me looking at the globe that we have. Yeah. Yeah. And where is the Yenisee? Well, once I'd found it, I then did some um, Wikipedia-ing. So my research is absolutely solid. Good. Yeah. Largest river to drain into the Arctic Ocean. Ah. Uh, starts in Mongolia and kind of works up and divides the West Siberian plain from the Central Siberian plateau. So basically just goes through. It goes right through the heart of Tartaria, if Tartaria ever existed. Um, But the fact that, because it's obviously drained into the Arctic Ocean, the fact that it's free of ice is quite a big deal because for part of the time it should be... It should be icy. Over, yes. Yeah, so we we have them chatting and Lee's kind of obviously asked Sam about Grumman and he thinks he's dead. Yeah. Uh, it says his leg got cut open by a trap. He tried to heal it with blood moss, which we've heard about before. Yeah, the bears use the bears. that as a medicine. And I think the, the, the implication there is, but he died. He doesn't actually say that, I don't think. All we get is a story of he got his leg cut open, he tried to heal it. Well, he then gets cut off by someone else who's heard a different story about Yeah, so him. we never this find is, out... This is where the weird overlapping uh-huh. gossip thing starts. But what we do find out is that he had a tongue-like barbed wire. Um, and, yeah, he's quite tough sort of guy he's a tarser by initiation as well which yeah. we sort of knew also before we'd started to guess that he'd mm-hmm. been trepanned and that might mean the Tartars actually really liked him rather than trying to kill him and that kind of gets confirmed because we find out he wasn't just initiated as a Tartar he was viewed as like a shaman or a medicine man yes hence the trepanning so he was quite a respected adopted mm-hmm. Tartar yes he was indeed um I'm still coming back to that giant killer squid because yeah. There are giant killer squid in there. I mean, I know you get giant squid here, but the the addition of killer implies they are like... But is this an old salt's tale or is it real? It's so hard to know when we're discussing things in Lyra's world. What if it's somebody's demon? Whoa, someone's got, like, yeah. the most inconvenient demon. I mean, I mean, just to confirm, I don't think that's a spoiler at all. I don't think that's true, but it could be. Wow. That'd be the worst. Yeah. Have you noticed how the only animals you really hear about in Lyra's world that aren't demons are, like, monstrous things like the cliff gas and this giant squid? Mm. Is it that the only animals that exist in Lyra's world are terrifying beasts? No, they, I think... 
because if <laughs> yeah, now because I'm sure if so, like what what where would they get the names for what their demons look like from? Oh, look, your demon's an osprey. What's an osprey? I don't know. It's the shape your demon is. We just decided. Yeah. Anyway, back to Grumman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So all of that weird stuff's happening, and the fog is still coming in from the north. The fog, the famous fog that started when the portal was open. Portal, gateway, bridge. bridge whatever you like to call it. I'm going to use those interchangeably. Yeah. Um, they are full of strange light and voices, but also shadowy sort of figures. figures. Yeah, weird stuff in those clouds. Mm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, so they catch the attention of another guy, one of the other, I was going to say salty sea dogs, but they're salty not just... Salty sky dogs. Yes. <laughs> Something like that. And he claims to have seen Grumman getting his school drilled actually getting trepanned and he says it takes days which sounds pleasant oh do you think it how much do you think it hurts to get trepanned there's only one way to find out <laughs> drill <laughs> get, get the drill i mean yeah i'm gonna say it hurts i can't imagine how getting a hole drilled in your head wouldn't be painful but yeah but what sort of pain do you think it'd be the sort of pain of like oh my god my bone is being worn down by friction because they do it with a bow drill oh yeah they which do. is oh, like rough. you know what a bow drill is yes good yeah so it's literally done by friction rather than like cutting or anything like that do you think it'd be like having a really intense headache in like one specific place? I think you'd feel the pressure because they'd have to apply quite a lot of pressure to get the friction high enough. But that's what it feels like when you've got a migraine. So basically getting Japan feels like having a three-day migraine. Like yes. a really intense one where your head is actually being split apart. With blood involved as well, yeah. Right, horrid is how it feels yeah. to be trepanned, I'm imagining. What do you think happens to that, that bit? Like, does it just fall out like around a circular <laughs> well, piece of If it's head? a bow drill, I'm guessing it's just ground to dust. And uh, maybe they have yeah. to keep cleaning the indentation of the dust periodically. Like, would it go straight through to the brain? What, if you drilled all the way through the skull? Well, I wonder how far they do it. Like, do they do a full-on straight-through hole? Because surely that'd be bad. Well, get I'd, infections and stuff. I mean, if trepanning's like it is in our world, yeah, it goes all the way through the skull, and then I guess you have to be really careful not to pierce the um, meningus, the... Could you have put like a little cork in it for when you're not using it for spiritual purposes, just to make sure that nothing? You probably got could, in there. but I think I think that they would sew the skin back over so there'd oh, be a hole right. in the skull because I don't think you walk around with just like your oh, brain poking out. That's what I was thinking. I was just like, this doesn't seem. No, no, no. So sensible. I think that <laughs> the thing is that you would cut the skin and fold it back, back. then drill the skull Ooh, and then sew the. Because there, I mean, there are people that have trepanned themselves oh, yeah. in the modern day, and that's what they do. But so I can only assume. This is my thing. Like, it's got to be painful, but not too painful because people can do it to themselves. But you, you know can, I mean? I mean, you can do quite a lot of painful things to yourselves if you need to. I mean, yeah, there was that story of the World War One pilot that got in a crash and his arm or leg was trapped in the fuselage of his plane, so he basically bit his own limb off Yeah, but that's escape. like a life or death situation. With trepanning, you're choosing to do that. Yeah, but if you're suitably motivated to do it, like the life and death thing is just a motive, right? Uh-huh. If your motive is strong enough... You could just really want those spirits in my head. Yeah, I don't know, really. But anyway, Grumman was trepanned. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Stop picking up on the irrelevant details, Sarah. We've oh, got a podcast to do. Um, <laughs> we're going to be here forever at this rate. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so yeah he finds out what tribe he was in as well yeah. and where it was based yeah. which is some real handy information to get the information about why his school was drilled because he was recognized as a shaman and we get other stories about how he was killed yeah. contrasting ones killed in a battle with scralings yeah. crushed under boulders again this is quite a difficult one to as i'm looking at my notes now i realize that that conversation goes in all kinds of directions it does honestly we can put it out in any order because there's only <laughs> one piece of really important information that we're building to yeah this his tribe are the roughest bunch of scoundrels i ever saw yeah. so that adds to the idea that like he's a proper he's a proper tough boy yeah i mean the the roughest tartars respected him enough to make him ashamed yeah. and so he's got some tough friends yeah again a bit of information about his character the guy says that the man's curiosity was as powerful as a wolf's jaws yeah which sounds a lot like asriel actually it does a bit doesn't it there's a bit of a parallel there yeah um he grilled a lot of people you know he would ask people questions Mm. about all kinds of different things um he was very inquisitive he was very tough he was very adventurous clearly he was doing all kinds of stuff headstrong been in battles turned down a witch which is apparently like you don't do that yeah the witch wanted to jump his bones and he wasn't having any of it i feel like witches might be a little bit entitled because the guy says a witch offers you her love you should take it if you don't it's your own fault if bad things happen to you i'm like thinking witches like go after people or like or they curse them in some way and i'm sure part of that's magical thinking of people who know witches but also that witch did seem kind of pissed and it's like Learn to take rejection. Yeah. Well, we also find out that he had another name. He had a Tartar name. We do find that out, yes. And, and his Tartar name, Joe Parry. Joe. Joe. John Parry. John, John Parry. Does it sound familiar? I've heard that. John. John. I've heard of a John Parry. <laughs> Stanislaus Grumman. John Parry. Confirmed. Dun, 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 dun. Right at the beginning of chapter six. I honestly didn't remember that being revealed yeah. that early on. To be fair, I'm hoping everybody put that together because I've got a feeling that when I first read this, it took until they actually literally say it for me to figure that out. Well, you didn't realise that Joe Parry and John Parry... Look, I was quite young when I first read were. this, so I'll give myself a pass on that one. But yeah, um, but I think if you're reasonably smart, you've figured that one out. Yeah, I would say so. This is a really interesting way of writing the story, though, because now we know. So the tension for us of wondering what happened to Will's dad is gone. We kind of know, and that's resolved for us. But it also means that Pullman can build tension around Will himself discovering this fact. So it's quite a nice little way of revealing it to us, I think, if a bit hasty, maybe. I think... It's worth just taking a second to remember reading this for the first time and being like, how fucking cool is this reveal? Yeah. All this time, like, Grumman has been a character sort of from the beginning. Like, his name was mentioned in the, like, second chapter. And now we know that he is Will's dad. And that's just exciting and cool. Yeah, I mean, in a, in a sense, it's Will's dad that provided the kind of motivation Mm -hmm. for the scholars to fund Asriel to go to the north again it's that whole thing about fate and destiny you know this guy his fate was essentially to cross worlds just to die so that Lyra could be drawn to the north to fulfill her destiny or did he die that still remains to be seen Mm. well one of the other things we learn from the gossip in the bar is that John Parry 
Stanislavs Grumman. I'm going to use those interchangeably now. Not Joe Parry or Joe Parry. I, I probably won't because you don't really get that name for that long in the books. So, you know, but if I say it, I say it. Who knows? It's just another thing in this series of books that I'm going to constantly give a different name to because okay. Pullman started it, all right? Okay. Pullman started it. Um, he was appointed <laughs> to the Muscovy, uh, what was it? Imperial Muscovite Academy. That's it, okay. I'll call that whatever I want as well. Um, and Lee knows that they've got some premises relatively nearby, an observatory, so he finds himself a guide driver to take him up there. And before all that happens, they kind of finish off the conversation. The, the conversation actually finishes off with the kind of Joe Parry reveal. But just before that, I think it's worth mentioning that they talk about the changes in the world. Um, and one of the guys who is a seal hunter claims to have seen the new world right after the split. He's in his canoe. And I did a little motion then as if I had my canoe. Yeah. And he sees the moment of the, the portal bridge gateway opening. And he says, I tell you, friends, that was something worth toiling 50 years to see. I would have paddled up the sky into that calm sea without a backward glance, but then came the fog. Mm. I think for me, one of the interesting things is that he describes it as being as if, like, the horizon just carried on forever into mm. the sky. Yeah, that's why I wanted to, like, read that bit, because technically... It doesn't necessarily add anything to the story other than the kind of general feeling that people know that something's not right. But I really love that idea that it's something worth toiling 50 years to see. Mm. It's like this really magical kind of moment. Yeah. Um, so Lee leaves with Umak, who's his Tartar sled driving guide, who's going to take him to the Royal mm. Muscovite Observatory thing. <laughs> Academy. Um, and they're discussing, like, these weird events that are happening in the sky. Mm. And Umak says that um, it's happened thousands of years prior, that the spirits opened the sky. And... I mean, I can read the quote if you like, because I've got it yeah, written down. Yeah, read the quote. <clears throat> sky fall open, and spirits move between this world and that world. All the lands move. The ice melt, then freeze again. The spirits close up the hole after a while, seal it up. But witches say the sky is thin there, behind the northern lights. Mm. And apparently the witches believe that the same thing is happening again, mm -hmm. and that there'll be a spirit war. Spirit war. Sounds pretty cool to me. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> they yeah. arrive at the observatory. They do indeed. And Lee heads off on his own to visit with the astronomers and talk about Grumman. And what's interesting about this whole conversation is the fact that even though all these astronomers work together and all seem to know Grumman, they all seem to think that he was something different. That's one of the first things that jumps out at me. Mm -hmm. So some of them think he was a geologist, some think he was a archaeologist, some think this, some One think of them that. was convinced he was English. Yeah, another says, <laughs> no, he's German. He, yeah. he came from... Uh, one, Berlin Academy? The Berlin Academy. I need to stop trying to name things. My brain is gone. Um, <laughs> it seems anyway that Grumman got about and he obscured his true identity and interests from people. One of the more interesting studies that he was involved in was human civilization. And he believed that there would be a 30,000-year-old civilization buried somewhere under the Arctic ice and that essentially the Earth's magnetic field had shifted and caused weather mm. changes that had buried it and things like that. Yeah. Um, so he had some quite fringe theories for Lyra's world. Mm. I think one of the bits I like the most about this conversation is just a small part 
where somebody says he's not a geologist he's a paleoarchaeologist and then another guy like pipes in and is like why have you got to add unnecessarily titles to things and it's like ah academics yeah paleo like archaeologists always old. have an interest in old stuff and he's like yeah but it's really old yeah really old 30,000 years old yeah um what else is interesting is that as they're sort of arguing about who he was and where he came from, they all sort of agree that no one had really heard of him until nine years ago. There's mm. Some of them at the observatory have known him for seven years, but he yeah. only really popped up on anyone's radar about nine years ago when he published a paper um, about the Earth's magnetic field, and it sort of made him a bit famous. Um, yeah. So I think essentially John Parry is using probably quite common scientific knowledge in our world to establish himself with credentials in their world. Yeah. Yes, um, smart. I suppose he's probably kind of good at adapting because of what he did as a job. Yeah, he was a commando, adapt yeah. and overcome and all that. Yeah, so mm. he's like on it. They do discuss the theories about what they think has happened to him. Most of them seem to think that he is dead. Yeah. So, yeah. Everyone seems to think he's dead, but no one can agree how. Yes, much like the guys in the bar as well, you know. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's got a story. But while they're having this conversation... Hester slyly tells Lee to check out the Skraling. Yeah, there's a Skraling present. Mm-hmm. Who has a snowy owl demon staring at them uh, with hostility and suspicion, mm. which is not what you want. No. Mm-mm, when you're trying to search for a... Missing person. person. No. It's that moment when Poirot starts to suspect who the real killer is. Yes. <laughs> for Poirot fans out there. <laughs> um... Things don't get any better when Lee asks if Grumman had ever shown any interest in dust. And it's a tumbleweed moment. <laughs> it is, but the reason he asks that question is because he realises the man is wearing like a religious ring. Yeah. He suddenly realises that it's the magisterium presence there. And that's because all research stations have to include a representative from the magisterium to make sure... They're not heretics. Yeah, which is a bit extreme. Hmm. And everyone falls silent. And someone sort of says, where did you hear about dust? And he says, oh, I don't know, some pisshead in a bar, some guy I was travelling with, whatever it is, some dumb excuse that he makes up and drops the subject. Mm. Um, So the scholars just tell him that dust's it's just a celestial phenomenon, doesn't really have any practical value or anything like that. So anyway, Lee decides to leave. And as he's leaving with Hester, what should happen but an owl? swoops suddenly out of the night sky and Hester just evades being grabbed by it and Lee realises that the Skraling is attacking them and they end up fighting and Lee shoots and wounds him and then interrogates him with a gun to his head. Yeah, all very dramatic. Indeed. The Skraling reveals that he's sent a message to the Magisterium, which is bad times. Yeah. Uh, he also tells him that he's an enemy of the church. <laughs> so, I mean, I think he kind of knew that already, but yeah. uh, I guess now the church know where he has been. Yes, that's true. Um, the man is clearly dying. He's bleeding out. Lee actually offers to help him, but then the guy gets all weird and kind of wants to die a martyr. Yeah, essentially that's it's like, it. If you're gonna die a martyr, if you're going to die a martyr, this this is a bit of a shit way to go, to be honest. Mm. No one's witnessing it. No one's like... It's God's good. witnessing it. Good point. Um, <laughs> he thinks. <laughs> Lee tries to get a final question into him, but he dies before he can. And Lee's kind of disgusted by him at this point. He says, The Skraling's face now bore the same expression as the saints in the picture, an ecstatic straining towards oblivion. 
Lee dropped him in distaste. So the saints in the picture is a reference to... Martyred saints. Yeah, a painting with martyred saints. And so Hester very smartly encourages Lee to take the man's like little, religious ring. Yeah, it's a little magisterium seal. Yeah, because they is. might be able to use it. She's like, look, we're in trouble with them now anyway. We've got nothing to lose. We Let's, might as well use what we've got. Yeah, steal from them, lol. Yeah. So they do. Um, <laughs> Lee disposes of the body. We find out, yeah, we find out that he doesn't like violence. He's had to kill before, but he's not a fan, which is interesting because you think of him as kind of this gunslinger, kind of very casual with violence maybe. But it appears... I quite, I quite like how you described it as he's not a fan. He's not a fan of killing. This is his fourth kill, we find out, yeah. to be specific, but he's not a fan of killing. Anyway, Hester sort of does what demons seem to do, what we've seen Pan do, and reasons mm-hmm. with him a bit and says, look, clearly, these Magisterium people are insane. This isn't your fault. Like, you had to do this. Self-defence mm. and all that. Which is true, really. Mm. So Lee goes back to his driver and presumably doesn't mention the attack because he quite casually asks him about John Parry. He just um, turns up with, like, blood on him, slightly out of breath, but, like, acts just, nothing happened. Just shot a man, tell me about Joe Parry. <laughs> <laughs> and the driver says, like, basically everyone knew him. He was a bit of a legend, it would appear. Um, but that, that name, Joe Parry, isn't a Tartar name. Um, he's also unclear whether... John is actually dead or alive. He says he might even have gone over into the spirit world, which mm. I think implies that he thinks he's crossed into the kind of bridge. Yeah, which would make sense. Yeah. Um, so Lee sort of resolves to head off to find a ship so that he can go and sail to see Grumman slash Parry's old Tartar tribe. Mm-hmm. Cut to another scene. An interesting way to open this chapter, because really it just threw loads of information at us, reminded us that Lee was important to the story, Mm. reminded us of the magisterium, but also told us who, like, John Parry was and Grumman was and all the rest of it, all in actually quite a short space of time. Yeah, it was quite fun to read all of that, I think, to get bits of information and you feel like you are, like, legit on a bit of a hunt with Lee. We'll start, start the chapter with a big revelation and move straight into another scene that's going to give us another interesting revelation mm-hmm. um, in a more literal sense. So we're with Serafina and Ruta, the witches yeah. now, um, and they're flying in skies that are unfamiliar to them. So immediately yeah. we basically get told that they've crossed the bridge. They've flown yeah. until they've flown through to other worlds. There's more fog because there's nothing that Phil likes more than some fog with his portals. Do you think the fog is a, a nice device to help kind of cover up what it looks like to cross to the characters so he doesn't have to try and describe it? <laughs> maybe. Or maybe he's just trying to give the idea that it's had some effect on the world. Yeah. And I guess it would be a bit undramatic if you just sort of flew at the sky and suddenly were in another world. It's not quite as dramatic a thing to describe as flying through banks of fog and then suddenly being over unfamiliar lands. Yeah. Um, which is what they are. And and they sort of, they're observing the land below and seeing these strange spectral forms which they've never seen before. It also mentions that sometimes birds swoop at them and birds of types they've never seen before and yeah. things like that. They're just beset by all this not our worldly stuff. Yeah. But most important are these these spectral forms. Yes. They can't fly, which is kind of surprised to me. For some reason, I had in my head that they could. I think I imagine them being like dementors (laughs) floating in the air, but they can't fly. The witches can sense malice in them even before they've 
seen them do anything they just know that there's something not right about them yeah they can't tell if they're alive or not but they can tell they're filled with malice mm-hmm. um and they they essentially observe the specters yeah attacking a band of travelers that they see on the road it does say that these travelers appear to be demonless um which the witches find a bit disconcerting at first yeah. but soon this attack happens and the people start trying to flee Two people ride off on horseback, but the spectres are on the crowd before anyone else gets away. Yeah. I thought this was quite an interesting scene. It's quite, like, it's quite dark. Mm. We we get some really nasty stuff. So the spectres fly in amongst this band of travellers and start attacking people, but they bypass children and attack adults. It seems that the children can't see the spectres and also the spectres aren't even interested in them. Whether they can see them or not, we don't know, but they're pretty oblivious to them. There's quite a heart-wrenching bit where a person who's been riding on a car essentially sees a spectre coming for them and basically tries to offer it a child to try and... I wonder whether it's more like hiding behind the child. Um, Not going to lie, I'd probably try the same thing. (laughs) But the kids run away and, yeah, she gets involved by this thing the witches aren't disgusted by the actions of the adults this woman hiding behind the children and of the riders galloping away however i would point out that the witches decide to watch without interfering yeah very david attenborough of them they'll just let's see what happens seraphina even gets really close to watch one of them feed on Mm. this man and it's only when she sees the child drown because he hasn't got the protection of the parent that that's when she steps in she sees a child in trouble in the river basically doesn't she Uh, goes to rescue it she does also say that watching the spectre attack Mm. reminded her of vampires so i mean those are totes a thing then are they (laughs) apparently (laughs) so Uh, and she reasons that it's feeding on this man's demon which must be inside of him instead of outside of him yeah. Um, anyway, she swoops down to the river to pick up this child that's sort of fallen in and gotten into distress and uh, tries to shoot a spectre as she does so, but the arrows just have no effect. Yeah. I think it's interesting how she describes the sort of approaching spectre as more of a feeling. She feels this hideous dullness. I think that's maybe where I'm picking the Dementor thing up from because Dementors are meant to be like, a kind of metaphor for depression and stuff and that same sort of hideous dullness and also the kind of response of the adults after they've been spectred is kind of similar in that in that it dulls your kind of yeah you-ness yes and and the way the adults are described sort of during and following these attacks is very similar to what the sort of severed children were like yeah we saw in the last book this kind of just passive yeah almost unaware of what's happening around them yeah so they've basically just got this group of adults now who are still alive non-responsive seraphina goes over to a woman she tries to communicate with her she manages to sort of barely catch her attention but not really her eyes are glazed over so they're left as these kind of shells of what they used to be yeah so then all the witches decide to fly off after the people that escaped on horseback and try and talk to them. And they catch up with a man. One of the two people was a man. Mm. Um, And the witches kind of note that although he seems quite sorrowful, he doesn't seem cowardly. He sort of stands Mm. his ground against these women that fly down at him out of the sky on bow and arrow. She says, um, I think it's Seraphine, says she sees sorrow and strength in him. Yeah. She introduces herself as Seraphina, a witch from another world. 
Mm-hmm. He seems quite casually unfazed by that and introduces himself as Joaquin Lorenz, which I just point out at this point that the audio book mispronounces his name as Joachim, but it Joachim. would be Joachim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> sorry. Less about the audio book, the better, because it is diabolical. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I, I don't mind it, but I wouldn't say it's one of the better ones I've come across. Compare it to the one that you were listening to of Frank Herbert's Dune. Mm. That was lovely. Anyway, the witches obviously ask him about these spectres, and he says that there's basically no defence against them. It's only children that seem to be safe from them, and essentially, what's happened here is that. By law, all travelling parties have to have at least one man and woman on horseback and their job is to flee if spectres attack so that they can then come back and care for the children that the Mm. spectres leave behind. Yeah, I thought that was a really cool little detail. Like, this is a world that has gotten so used to this happening. They're adapting. Um, And how hard that would be, a position to have, where you, you basically know you've got to leave everybody behind and then look after all these kids when everyone gets kind of... It's a really important job, though, because if there is no defence against these things, you Mm. can't just leave the children in the middle of nowhere. I mean... Yeah, difficult. Yeah, he also adds that the cities are now, like, full of spectres. There used to be only a small amount, but now they're they're chock-a-block full of spectres. He also questions why the witches have come to their world. And Ruta, I think it is, explains that they are looking for Lyra. Yeah. And they and describe her. And yes. Ask if he's seen her. And he says no. No, he hasn't seen Lyra. But, and this might be better, depending on your point of view, he has seen angels. He has. Armed angels, no less, passing through the sky. Something yeah. which his ancestors have seen before, apparently. Mm-hmm. There's an awful lot now in this book of people saying this has happened before, you know. Yeah. Since this portal bridge, whatever we're calling it today, has opened, loads of people suddenly pop up and go, no, this has happened before, sky opened, spirit war. Bit like how he started to lean more heavily on the bond between human and demon in the first book. I feel he's leaning a bit heavily on this concept that every now and then the skies open and spirits pass between. Yeah. I wonder if that's building towards something. (laughs) scratch our beards in thought Um, yeah so the number of angels has increased as well yeah Ruta is obviously intrigued by this and she offers to protect their camp in return for information about their world he's like sounds like a deal yeah so they, they go back to try and round up the remains of the party which is quite a distressing scene yeah it's just all of the adults are now these abandoned vacant things that the spectres have finished feeding on and left so it's just the children in a state of distress amongst this kind of almost a zombie-like set of human yeah i think that bit was quite sad because you had the young children who'd lost parents in that particular attack who didn't want to leave their parents behind and you had like older children or children who'd lost parents already who were just like almost resigned to it and just really depressed because you've got to think that yes the children are okay for the moment but especially for like older teenagers they got to think i'm going to be older at some point and i'm not going to be a child yeah Yeah. clock's ticking yeah but they round them up anyway to Mm -hmm. make camp that allows the witches to talk with joachim more and the other rider who has returned which is the woman that the party was obligated to keep with them Campfire chat time. Exactly. We love a good campfire chat. So they discuss how the world that they're now in was once happy and bountiful, great cities from around the world, and he 
sort of talks about these different great civilizations, it's worth mentioning that a lot of the places he talks about are places that exist in our world, mm-hmm. presumably Lyra's world as well. Yeah, it's kind so, of paradise, this version of the world, though. It's like everyone's happy and they've got food. Yeah. And but was it really? Because he wasn't alive well, then, yeah, or is it just <laughs> going like, remember the good old days when these nearly invisible things didn't eat your soul? <laughs> you know. Um, but 300 years ago, something started to go wrong. And there's different beliefs about exactly what that was. Some believe that the philosophers in the Tower of Angels are to blame, he says. Some believe that it was a judgment for a great sin. But either way, the spectres came and changed their world into one of danger and uncertainty. Here's my time to do a quote. <laughs> all the trust and all the virtue fell out of our world when the spectres came. Ooh. And he talks a lot about something which I think is very interesting about like how trust collapsed because mm. you can't you can't make a promise to a lover mm. because the spectres could get you and break the promise for you. A business can't be relied upon because the spectres might come and kill its owner. And, mm. You know, so that's an interesting yeah. thing that trust was eroded by the spectres arriving. Yeah, I think he says it's like it's impossible for the society to prosper. Yeah. They're just kind of always stunted from that point on. Yeah. Ruta kind of picks up on the whole philosopher's angle um, and she asks who they are and where they can be found. Yeah. Uh, She asks specifically about this Tower of Angels and the man says that it's in the nearby city of Chittagatse. (gasps) They're in the same world as Lyra and Will, probably, unless they're in another world with a Chittagatse. I don't know. Oh, but God. could the Tower of Angels be the tower that Lyra kept ignoring the strange man in? I mean... Oh, no. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> we find out that it was it's called the City of Magpies, and yeah. that is because magpies steal, and that's all the philosophers do. They have created and built nothing for hundreds of years, which is why when kind of Will was looking around, he kind of noticed that things had once been kind of like really lovingly built, but it looked like everything was kind of decaying. And And falling apart. Yeah, it's because at one point it was this great civilization, but they haven't been able to do anything new for a long time. Progress has just slowed to a halt gradually. Yeah. Um, It's interesting, though, because some things must have either been really advanced 300 years ago in this Mm. world or some advances have been made because obviously the cafes and things that Will and Lyra went into had refrigerators. And they actually already know about other worlds. Um, That's why when Ruta was all like, hey, I'm from a different world, they weren't all really shocked. And that's because um, the philosophers have been travelling between worlds for some time. They believe it's either that they have a spell that allows them to cross through or that they have some kind of key that allows Mm, them to do that. Some device that may let them open doors anywhere, essentially. I think he says that some people believe they accidentally forget to close the door sometimes and that's when the spectres start sneaking in. Yeah, they still use these portals as well. Yeah. That's the important thing, um, to steal from other worlds, like ideas about technology, kind of objects, things to use, food, like all fridges. sorts. Like fridges. Like yeah. fridges, yeah. <laughs> um, so they basically supply the world by stealing from others, which is, I think, another reason for the whole City of Magpies thing, because yeah. they are basically a dead society just thriving on stealing from others yeah Mm. and he does say there was a rough balance with the spectres so you know they knew about them as he kind of mentioned before there were only a few of them and then the storm happened big old foggy storm just lately and then once the fog had cleared city full 
of spectres. Yeah, thousands of them. And, and the people just fled, but there was just no real way to escape them. Yeah. Well, quite a dramatic tale. So Serafina responds in kind by reciting the events of Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials book <laughs> one to Joachim, presumably, and she tells him her story. Mm-hmm. And he responds saying that he believes that since their philosophers leave doors open sometimes, that's how travellers might pass between worlds and angels too. Mm-hmm. And Serafina asks him to tell her a little bit more about these angels, which is what we're also asking, because at this mm. point we're like, Please. Joachim explains that they actually call themselves the Benny Elim. <gasps> the Benny Elim, like the Benny Gesserit. That's what I thought just, just when I... get all my Dune references in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm intrigued to know what that actually means, if that means anything, or if it's just a name that Phil was like. Benny Elim? Mm-hmm. I'm going to just go out and say, now I'm going to Google this, but just in case I'm right, I believe Elim is like a reference to celestial beings and Ah, angelic creatures. That's actually very honest of you because you could have just been like, I know this piece of information. So, Beni Elim is basically Hebrew and it means the sons of God. No, that's simple. And they are comparable with angels, essentially. Sweet. Yeah, so my guess was was not too far off the mark. Fair play. Um... He does also say that some people call them watchers. Hmm. So there's that. Like, like maybe they stand in their tower watching people. People that forget to mention that they've seen it, like Lyra, who should have definitely told Will there was a man in that tower watching them. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to let that go, are you? Nah. Mm-hmm. It's my latest bugbear. I did one every episode now. I feel like it makes me humorous. <laughs> Am I, am, I, am I right? Absolutely. I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> um, they are not beings of flesh. No. I don't know why I feel like I have to say flesh like that. Flesh. Uh, they are beings of spirit, potentially, or very light flesh. He kind of goes back on himself on yeah, that one. Well, you know, make flesh, eye flesh. Maybe they're eye flesh or maybe they're spirit. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Um, um, they carry messages to and from heaven. I'm not really sure how they know that, though. Yeah, speculation, I think, there, Joaquin. Yeah. I think you can leave that speculation at the door. Just stick to the facts, please, (laughs) ma'am. They too shine bright in the sky, though. They do. And they used to deal with humans, but now they're kind of only concerned with whatever they're dealing with. Yeah, in ancient times, again. There's loads of in ancient times. Rumour has it. But following the storm, once again suddenly more of them appear yeah. and they are angry and concerned and, and, armed. and closer and closer yeah. yes he says like during the storm when the fog was covering the land he could hear their voices in the sky and, mm. and it sounds like they were having some sort of skirmish and yeah, he like even saw one wounded and it had yeah. fallen by a river but he took his eyes off it and it vanished yeah it's interesting how when he sees the wounded one he feels wrong looking at it. Mm. He feels kind of somehow like he's seeing something he shouldn't be seeing. Bit of an avert your eyes moment. Yeah. We do get a little bit more of a description of exactly what they look like shortly, which mm. I think relates to maybe why he feels wrong when he's looking at it. But, yes. Because um, Ruta essentially picks up on the fact that the angels are heading for the North Pole. That's something he tells Everyone them. loves the North Pole. Uh, the North Pole is so pivotal to these books. It should have been called it's the North Pole. It's pivotal to uh, oh, the world as well. <laughs> that was intentional, definitely not. <laughs> yes. Um, Joachim says that the North Pole actually would be where the kind of 
spirits of the world reside and the barrier maybe between worlds is thinner and if the angels are going to essentially mount an attack from anywhere it's going to be from there that they'll again muster. is this speculation yeah probably probably <laughs> i mean it's speculation that turns out to be kind of accurate but anyway we'll, i'll let i'll let that go as they have to they do ask him about dust but he's like i don't know back to your thing about the whole this happened in the past and now it's happening again. We do actually get a kind of worry from uh, Joaquim. Did I say that right? Joaquim. Joaquim, that there might be a war coming. Hmm. There was a war in heaven previously, thousands of years ago. Could this be the spirit war that the yeah. people in Lyra's world were talking about? Mm. And also, do we have stories in our own world about a war in heaven? Yes, we yes, do. Yes, we do. That's, that was that awkward bit, wasn't it, when Satan got kicked out? Yeah. Yeah. Get out of the house, Satan. We we don't want you anymore. You've not paid rent in weeks. Mm-hmm. And that is what um, Paradise Lost is about, the aftermath of that. But we will be doing some sort of look at Paradise Lost, fear not. Uh, however, at this moment, they see some angels flying through the sky. Quite fortuitous. Mm. So Ruta says, you know, I'm going to go after these angels and find out what's what. Brave. Brave witch. Yeah. She's just like, yeah, I'm just going to cash. I'm just going to talk to him, you know, why yeah, not? Yeah, see how it goes. So um, she flies with her demon, Sergei. Not... <laughs> who, now that name has been ruined by, like, the meerkats. Oh, thing. yeah. In England, we have this... This insurance company broker type thing called Compare the Market, which compares insurance prices. And for some reason, they've spent about the best part of the last decade advertising it in a really jokey way using meerkat oligarch called who's got a friend called sergey alexander orloff and his friend is sergey they're meerkats and they're very indignant about the fact that people keep coming to their website compare the meerkat looking for compare the market but there's also some kind of like weird kind of sort of homoerotic vibe between alexander and sergey at one point they have a child together but but then they send him to africa yeah anyway but it's a meerkat child it is yeah it's not a human child oleg a little baby Oleg. Yeah. I thought that was a like, worldwide thing. I didn't realise it was just the UK that had I'm, I'm almost certain no one else in the world is mad enough to try and market something like that. And you know what? It worked, so fair play to them. Yeah. That is now a massively successful business. Anyway. Right. Ruta says goodbye to um, Serafina because she's realised that even if she doesn't manage to speak to the angels and find out where Asriel is, she's going to go off on her own and search for him now anyway. Yeah, so, so it's time for them to part. So there's a little moment where they say goodbye. Peace out. Yeah. <laughs> and off she goes with Sergey. Yes. <laughs> uh, so she kind of pursues the angels for quite a while. Uh, just trying to observe them and as she finally starts to approach closer they she realizes they don't glow mm. as she thought they did but they just appear to be lit by the sun even mm. in darkness which is quite cool quite yeah. like that they're muscular winged beings they're unarmed but they're obviously powerful she does what you do to any muscular obviously powerful celestial winged being and approaches them for a chat <laughs> and they surround her and hover around her and although each one is clearly a distinct individual uh, they all look very different from humans in a way that she doesn't seem to quite be able to explain at least to the reader yes and there's also a sort of level of intelligence there mm. that she can see in them 
rude to herself although she's fully clothed and they aren't she feels naked under their gaze yeah. so there's something quite powerful about them and it's kind of a bit of a callback to that experience before that the guy had about looking at them and feeling like it wasn't Right. Yeah, there's something something odd about being in their presence. Yes. Um, she wants to know what they're up to. They're following the call. I find this conversation quite funny because they are a little bit like, well, <laughs> they're just a bit sort of a bit sassy, like maybe we're doing this, maybe we're not. Mm. Yeah. Well, to me, it reads as like they kind of they don't really have any reason not to answer her because she's I mean, she's just a witch. What's she going to do to them? Mm -hmm. But also like they don't really need to answer her. It's kind of one of those things of like if your dog could speak and asked you how fridges work. You know, you'd just I'd be, be like, oh, like, you want to know how fridges work? Let me tell you. I actually don't know, so I'm going to have to do all this. <laughs> Fray on gas. Anyway. Um. <laughs> um, they say that they are answering the call of yeah. a man. Um, but they won't actually reveal if it's Asriel, because she well, asks, is it no, Asriel? They and they're don't like, say they're answering the call of a man. She asks, are you answering... Like, they say we're following the call, and she says the oh, call of a it. man, and they say... Maybe. And she says, is it Lord Asriel? And they say, perhaps. <laughs> That's what I mean. They're like, hella yeah. vague. Um, um, so she's like, well... Why, though? Why, though? You've got to take me with you. <laughs> yeah, but their answer to that is also brilliantly vague because they say because they are willing to. Not because they want to, because they are willing to. I think that's yeah. different. There's a different emphasis on that. I also like to pick up on the fact that when they say maybe they're following the call of a man. Are they doing that to be vague? Or is that implying that he might not necessarily be a man or just a man? Because mm -hmm. we're getting back into the old speculation now of what I think Hazriel is. And others do think it too, that he is yeah. an angel. Or maybe they don't see gender in the same way. Mm. So like, eh, maybe he is, but I haven't really thought about it. Yeah. Partly, I think that might be because, although Ruta doesn't realise it, she only actually sees them in that human form because that's what she expects to see. Mm. Their real form is described as more architecture than animal, which yeah. I kind of can't explain and like can't think of in my head. I kind of imagine sort of duplo blocks. It's it's architecture made of thought and intellect, isn't it? It's which is cool. I did. Which is really cool. I mean, I like it because. It has like a kind of almost cosmic horror vibe, mm -hmm. like this thing that's incomprehensible to the human eye. Um, and I wonder if the reason why people feel discomfort when they look upon them is because of that, because there's some hint that their true form is just incomprehensible and that mm -hmm. what you're looking at is almost like a projection of them. Yeah, it's not real. It's just what you're yeah. only what your mind can make sense of. Yeah. And it's very, um, it's also actually kind of in a way calls to certain sort of theories in theoretical physics that would have been gaining traction at the time. The idea that, like, actually all of reality is a projection from a kind of background architecture that exists on fewer dimensions than our world appears to. Ah, uh, my brain. Yeah, and that's how I kind of conceive of it when it's described that way. I, I can't imagine what they look like because the point is you're not meant to be able to, but it's kind of like that idea that they're a projection outwards from a a point somewhere else. Mm. It's also funny how Ruta seems like a child to them. So we've had a lot of the, the witches being like, ah, oh, humans. Mm. They're like children. They only live to like 70 or whatever. Um, Ruta herself is like 450 odd. Yeah. Um, but she seems like a child to 
the angels. Yeah. And Something. she doesn't know, but they also have an awareness that spreads out across the universe. Is it scrubbed like tentacles? Yeah, so, so they're a little bit omnipotent. Mm-hmm. I also got a sense that almost a little bit connected to each other, a little mm. bit hive-mindy. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that she realises that when they're speaking, she can't really tell which one it is that's speaking. Mm-hmm. So is it a collective voice? Is it a psychic communication? Is it to do with the fact that she's not really seeing their full form? So she's not really seeing where this voice is coming from? Mm. Well, you'd have thought that if they don't actually have human bodies, they don't have vocal cords. So that sound isn't being made in the way that we would expect, expect it, it to be. be. Yeah. It'd be interesting for you to try and make what you think an angel voice would sound like. Oh, are you asking me to do a bit of sound design? Yeah. Well, if I managed to... Here it is. And I'll just edit that later. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, after all this, she decides to follow them and they fly through the night. Yeah, turns out they're less visible in daylight. Yeah, presumably because that sun that's shining on their skin doesn't stand out as much as against a background that's actually lit. Yes. (laughs) Um, There's a really nice description of Ruta, kind of, and I don't know if this bit is because of the angels and her closeness to them or what, but she has this delight in her senses, like how she feels everything, you know, looking at all the other creatures in the world, feeling connected to them, belonging to the world. Yeah. What did you think of that? Well, I think that it is somehow linked to the angels and to her ego. Because, yeah, mm-hmm. it does describe her being joyous flying with them, but it also describes that she sort of rejoices the fact that she's commanded them to take her to Asriel, and they are. So it's kind of like, it's a bit of an ego thing of, like, I'm mm. bossing angels around. Don't think that's really what's happening. I think they're just tolerating her because there's no particular reason not to. Maybe mm-hmm. even because they know something about what's going to happen in the future and they're just like, well, you can be part of this. Mm. Um, yeah, but there, there was something really nice about that. I think I've had similar kind of sensations a few times in my life where you really feel like you're fully aware of yourself and your surroundings and connected with everything. And it's not, I don't mean that in a religious or woo-woo-y spiritual way. You just I mean, feel very aware of, of that. And yeah. even the fact, you know, when she says about dying, even that doesn't make you sad. Like, I've had that similar feeling of like, it's okay once I die, all that was me is going to go back into the ground and carry on making life. And that's spectacular. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that she thinks of death at this moment mm-hmm. and sort of reconciles herself with it. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> would you say that one of those times you felt that was when you went skipping around that lake where the dam busters used to practice dropping bombs? <laughs> um, um, I wouldn't say that was one of them. I'm very happy oh. then, to be fair. But it's probably been more in sort of quiet moments, but definitely nature-related, I'd say. I, I don't think I've ever had it where I've just been walking around the house or inside or whatever it's always been the house been... is such a reminder of the universe's majesty <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's always been when i've been outside and yeah. that kind of thing so yeah so she's she's taken in the landscape anyway feeling yeah. connected to things and she realizes as they fly and they're flying for ages readers i'm not going to say exactly how long so i've forgotten but it's like days she realizes from the feel in the air and the world around her that they're passing through into another world and she can kind of sense the the change but she isn't sure exactly how they crossed over so she asks as you would and the angels say that there are many hidden gateways which they can see but 
other people can't. So she immediately, and I think cleverly, takes note of the landscape where they are yeah. so that she can try and find her way back if she needs to. Smart. Um, but before long, they're approaching a immense basalt fortress built into some mountains, and it's vast. Yeah. I, I would use Pullman's poetry to describe its vastness, but I didn't write any of it down. Did you? I didn't, but it was very, <laughs> it was very good, and I think it's just very, very Asriel to yeah. make it just like some just next fat ass fortress yeah, on a mountain. Because this is basically Asriel's war fortress, and as she approaches, we get a sense that he's building something. Like you can hear the whirring of mills and machinery clanking. Yeah, there's fires going. Yeah, they've got the zeppelins and yeah. other machinery flying in. Everyone seems to be converging on this point, and it's a hive of activity. This massive fortress. Ruta immediately demands to be taken inside the fortress to see Azriel and she commands that the angels be her guard of honour. She gets a bit like... A bit presumptuous, oh, But they kind of... I think they kind of do. They just sort of do it, yeah. Maybe they're just very subservient, actually. Who knows? Yeah. But I forgot to mention earlier, I got so caught up in the whole delighting in her senses business that she actually also mentions that she's excited to see Lord Azriel again. And it's kind of... Rude to fancies mm. Asriel. Yeah, because they've had a previous thing, haven't they? Um, Who hasn't Asriel bonked? <laughs> Who haven't the witches bonked? Like, anyone important, they've done it. Yeah. I mean, fair play to them, but um, it's kind of keep, hard to keep track of. Yeah, so... So they're going into Asriel's fortress, and yeah. another chapter ends without someone falling asleep, which is welcome. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> the description of the fortress and the machinery immediately reminded me of like Saruman's Tower in Lord of the Rings when mm. he's kind of preparing to go to war and they're, they're producing all the sort of uh, the Ulrakai and all of that there. He's yes. kind of industrialised his his gardens effectively. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely that kind of vibe. It's, it's a hub, a hive of, of busyness preparing for war this spirit war i mean we don't need to i think call that a spoiler that clearly there is a war coming yeah it's exciting it is i feel feel legit excited i think going back to what we said at the start i'd forgotten how early on in this book certain things are revealed like the angels Mm. like john parry and grumman being the same man yeah, I hope we haven't actually spoiled that for anyone. Yeah, Soz, if we, like, totally ruined that for you. Yeah, maybe we should have called spoiler on that, but I just thought it was obvious enough, to be yeah. honest. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe someone will berate us for it, and I can only apologise for that. It's easy to forget when you already know something that mm. it doesn't seem as obvious to people that don't know it. Yeah, ultimately, exciting times. Yeah. We're in, like, full flight now. Um, I'm kind of gutted that I'm reading and taking notes. I just want to read it yeah. for its own sake. Because... Cancel the podcast and just yeah. read the book. <laughs> I mean, I am excited now. Like, this is building towards some of my most favourite parts in the books. Um, mm-hmm. I won't talk about them here because they're spoilers, although they've been in spoiler alerts since more or less we started <laughs> this podcast. Like, for me, the the what-the-fuck moments are coming, the things that when I first read it, I was like, holy shit, I can't believe he's going there. I can't believe this is happening. Mm. Um, we're starting to build towards all of that, and it maketh me happy. That's good. Yeah. I think, yeah, as we get forward, we're going to get increasingly giddy about things that are happening, which is going to be real exciting. Oh, boy, are we. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I will try and 
carry on doing some reading about Paradise Lost because I can already see some stuff happening and some. Yeah. This is where the parallels can really start to be drawn more overtly, yeah. isn't it? I mean, I will hold on till the day I die. The thing of Azrael is really kind of supposed to be an angel in these books. Mm -hmm. um, um, and, and descriptions and allusions to that are coming. Um, you know, in, in future chapters and podcast episodes. So brace yourselves for that. Okay. You might have to do a bit more convincing for me, but yeah. um, we'll see. So. With that, please join us on our social medias. If you've got any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss in our next episode, raise them there. I may actually start replying to people's comments in the discussion group directly in the podcast. Yeah, I think that would be a nice thing to do. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Like, if you want to pop us a, an email, let us know how you're getting on. Indeed. As always, the links are in the show notes. Mm. Review, subscribe, do whatever it is your podcast platform allows you to do to help us. Whatever spread. it demands of you. <laughs> yes. Pay fealty to <laughs> us and to your podcast <laughs> provider. <laughs> because you're willing to. <laughs> we love you. Goodbye. Goodbye.